During times in this episode, there is sensitive content that may be traumatizing to some audiences. Listener discretion advised. Welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. I'm Jennifer Diane Gustin, your host. Storytelling is just one of the best ways for adoptees to convey what has happened in their life from their perspective and a great way to open up to the adoption community. You, the listening audience, will have the opportunity through episodes in this podcast to learn, dissect, and grapple with some of the issues involving those of us separated from our family of origin. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation, validation even, that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and or managing past traumatic events. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? This week, Lena Scahill joins me for a chat about a research study that I was happy to take part in because it involves remembering the joy of the great outdoors. Lena calls her study Nurturing Through Nature, Adoptee and Foster Care Experiences and the Healing Power of Nature. The goal of this research is to explore how nature has been or continues to be a healing modality for adult adoptees or those who have experienced guardianship or kinship care through the foster care system. The study brings forth both the light and the darkness of these lived experiences in a way that is thoughtfully and beautifully held together by narratives of love and gratitude for nature and its power to create wholeness, connection, and belonging. Lena will share part of her relinquishment and adoption journey that resulted in her feeling a sense of shame about it. She further covers not receiving the necessary support while searching for birth family members, which resulted in turning her life upside down. Her reunion subsequently unearthed something that is often not discussed publicly in the community, nor on this podcast until now. Allow me to introduce you to someone I recently met through Brad Ewell, who has been a guest on my show, Season 8, Episode 132. I find Lena to be transparent and vulnerable in effort for some of her experiences to be avoided by others. She refuses to be silent about real and ever-present dangers that can happen in reunion now that she's on the other side of it. Lena, I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. I've been looking forward to it. How are you doing in Colorado? Well, I've been looking forward to it, too. And thank you for inviting me to the conversation. Uh, Colorado is good. It's um, green right now, which is nice. It hasn't been too hot. We had a nice wet spring. And yeah, it's 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 good. It's, It's good for now. Hopefully the fire season will be a calm one here. I live in the mountains at about 7,200 feet, so kind of in that urban wildland interface. And so fires are not unusual where I am and hopefully we'll get through the summer without any. But life is good here. How's life in Tennessee? I'm doing very well today. It is raining now and it was 
thundering a few minutes ago, so I'm hopeful that it won't interfere with our recording. They make me nervous sometimes. These storms come through so fast, but hopefully we'll be okay. I did get a walk-in this morning before it started to rain in the woods. I love that early in the morning, so I'm having a good start to the day. That's great. Yes. Nature does that usually. (laughs) <laughs> starting starting out with it will make everybody's day a little bit better. But I'm glad you got out before the rain, and um, I hope it was a peaceful walk. It was. It really was. It always, it always is. I don't know, something about just the greenery and yeah. the trees. And, and then I meet other people, so it's um, a real special time. You recently rescued a doggie, a golden lab. Yeah, yeah. Her <laughs> name's Sydney. She's about a year and a couple of months old. She had a pretty rough start in life. You know, had a litter of puppies and this kind of incarcerated concrete jungle-ish area. So she had a pretty rough start, but she was flown out of Texas. She was actually from Texas, flown out of Texas by a, a group connected with Mile High Lab Rescue. And they get pilots there to fly dogs out of there for free. They don't charge the rescues anything to bring them out because Texas is a kill state. So any of the animals that end up in a dire strait will be put down. So they rescue from there. And so she flew to Texas and then had a short stay with some fosters in Denver and then came to me and she's very peacefully sleeping at the moment after a nice walk this morning. So she's awesome. She's taught me a lot. You know, they say you get the dog you need, not the dog, the dog you want. And I definitely got the dog I needed. She's brave and she's taught me a lot about becoming comfortable in your body and uh, overcoming trauma and being open to experiencing joy. And so she's brought a lot of joy to my life already. Helps me realize that more joy can happen when we stay open and, and, and brave in our lives. Yes, I'm a dog person. Yes. I think I got the dog that I needed as well nine years ago. And so I know exactly Aww. what you mean. And all those things you named, they're just really great things. Yeah. 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 Animals have a lot to teach us if we're open to listening and watching and learning. Exactly. So I know you hold a master's degree in sociology that you got in 2012 from the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. And you're a professor of sociology and women's and ethics studies at the University of Colorado. And you hold a master's certification in environmental education through the North American Association of Environmental Education. Oh, that's correct, right? That is. That's all correct. Yes. Yes. And you have been a lifelong advocate for the natural world and its sentient beings. Which brings me to what I really wanted to start off talking to you about, which is a study that you're conducting, Nurturing Through Nature, Adoptee and Foster Care Experiences, and the healing power of nature, which I am volunteering to participate in. So would you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So the origin story of the project really was kind of founded in a, in a few different ways. But I primarily wanted to do this study at this point in my career, dovetailing the two topics that I probably care about the most 
in my life. And that would be also the topics that I have spent my career teaching on, which is courses in adoption and family studies, and then courses in environmental justice and and climate change. So I've done research in the past on adoption about, you know, birth mothers, adoptive parents, adoptees, and that research was great. It served its purpose. It did what it needed to do in my life and checked the boxes I needed to check in terms of my role in academia. At this point, like I said, I wanted to bring together two topics that I cared the most about. And so the nurture by nature, adoptee and foster care experiences and the healing power of nature was sort of born. I thought about creating the study not only because it brought together my academic pursuits, but my adoption experience and growing up my childhood and honestly all the way through to my reunion, I really depended on the natural world for my survival. I grew up in a home that was pretty chaotic, often very violent, lots of issues with substance use and addiction. So I didn't want to be inside most of the time. The natural world really held me together, quite literally. I do say to some of the people that know me that, uh, you know, I've had two mothers and Mother Earth was the best mother and is still the best mother I've ever had. Most of what I needed to learn in life out in the natural world I figured that there would be other adoptees or folks from foster care or that or the kinship or guardianship care through the foster care system that were like me, really found the natural world as their refuge, and it saved them in many, many ways. So I thought, well, you know, most research is really born out of that. For most of us in the social sciences, it's that question of, well, I'm experiencing something. I wonder if other people are experiencing this too. I think I'll do a study. So that um, (laughs) really is a place where a lot of us come from in the social sciences. Those were the reasons I really wanted to do this this study. And and then last year in October, I decided to go to Italy to walk the lands of my paternal ancestors. I wasn't going there to meeting anyone. I'm trying to find family. I just, I went there to walk the land and to see why I love the things I love and why I live in the places I live. All of my paternal family members are from the Abruzzo region of Italy, so in the mountains, which I'd never been to Italy, so I didn't really know what the Abruzzo mountains would really look like. So anyway, I went there and hiked about 70 miles for, you know, about 10 days. So yeah, the study is sort of born from that experience as well. And I'll probably fold my experience into the research when it reaches um, a state of publication. Yeah, it mostly was founded out of wanting to know if, if adoptees and foster folks loved the natural world in the ways that I did and why. And it was also important to me to do research on adoptee and foster experiences where I balance the light with the dark because a lot of times that research is challenging and difficult. People are recounting difficult times in their lives. And then you, you know, you finish interviewing them and everyone is left in kind of a dark place that's uncomfortable for everyone, including the person doing the research. And so I thought, well, you know, this time I'll still talk about some of those difficult experiences with my participants, but we're going to end in a place of joy and awe and reminding people of why they love the natural world or renewing or deepening relationships that they have with nature as a result of having talked about why it was meaningful throughout their lives and how it was embodied in their adoption journey. Yeah, if I can reconnect and create stronger relationships for my people 
through this study, then that will be a real gift for me and for the earth because right now it's probably in need of our attention more now than ever. So maybe maybe deepening those relationships will help people you know, become more aware of, of the perils that we face um, for planet Earth right now. I like what you said. Mother Earth is the best mother you've ever had. Yeah. I like no that. Question. Yes. And we talked a couple of weeks ago, and you asked me about early memories with my relationship with nature. And I shared with you the fact that as a little girl, as a little person, we couldn't wait. I could not wait to get outside, get outdoors. And when my mother said, make a decision, because, you know, as kids, we'd run in and out of the house. (laughs) And that decision was always to remain outdoors. And you made me think back to, yeah, my connection to nature, I think, has been a tool for me as well. I remember feeding squirrels. I remember (laughs) just connecting with the outdoors in in just beautiful ways, healing ways, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean... You know, we all have that connection when we're young. I mean, we just do. It's just part of when I mean, we are of the earth. I mean, in, in our construction, we are stardust. We are of the earth. So we are connected. It's just that in our culture, you know, we kind of through employment or school or social or cultural messaging, you know, we are sort of taught to see ourselves as separate from the natural world. And that can be in the way we live separately from it. I mean, suburbia was designed to separate people from the natural world. So, you know, between our lifestyles and work and raising a family or, you know, all of the things that make us grow up, right, (laughs) it often means that we lose connection Mm -hmm. to nature because it's all of a sudden not important anymore. And so, yes, I think um, it's, it's very, very, very important now more than ever that we find our way back to nature if we've gotten separated. I mean, that relationship was always there. Finding our way back to it is beneficial for us as humans and it's beneficial to the planet. You know, you, you can't see a relationship failing unless you have some commitment to it, some bonding with it. You know, it's like being in a marriage that's falling apart and, you know, you're not interested in saving it if you're not invested in it anymore. And I think that's true in part of the reason why we're dealing with so many issues with with the planet is that we've lost our connection, you know, and we can't save something that we don't have a relationship to anymore. And so, yeah, my underlying hope, you know, tertiarily with this project is is to bring people in reunion with the natural world. Right. Yeah. And that's what I'm excited about as it relates to your study. I picture it, of course, providing you with information and and at the same time, opening up your participants to, to something maybe they, like you said, just somehow got disconnected from because yeah. of the distractions. And I'll just say real quick, when I was kind of isolated because of the shutdown of the pandemic, yeah. In 2020, I had to think, you know, like pivot, like what can I do? Because I wasn't walking the trails in the morning before COVID. Yeah. Yes. And I remember saying, I knew about this trail. I wasn't intentional about it until something happened, right? Something 
that forced me to to look at things differently. And during that time, I felt the reconnection. Yeah, you know, I wanted this in my life, but I wasn't doing anything to get it. I say all that to say your study, I think, will open people up to, yeah, this is what was missing, or this is what I want to be better connected with. So to your point, I've interviewed quite a few people already and and had them either email me later or say at the end of the interview, like, I I have forgotten. I had forgotten. And right. so you reminded me how much I needed to right. be in natural spaces. And, you know, and let's be clear, too, that, you know, we tend in our culture to talk about, you know, being in the natural world is like some exotic trip to Costa Rica or something. And that's not really, it's not what it is. It's just any place outside your four walls. So it doesn't have to be, that connection doesn't have to be in some, you know, fancy destination where you're immersed in some jungle or whatever. It's just outside your four walls. And sometimes it can be inside your house. You know, I mean, there are lots of, lots of plant lovers, indoor plant lovers who, who communicate with their plants, who talk to them, who connect with them, who who care for them the way they care for a garden outside. So I talk so to my nature, plants. Yes. Yeah, same. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. You're so thirsty. I forgot. <laughs> yes. I mean, we really have to define nature and, and make it really clear that it doesn't have to be someplace exotic. Uh, you don't have to take a know, a trip to Lake Tahoe to get up into the mountains or in the Sierras or no, it's really just finding a tree in the park or and visiting it regularly or like you with your trails that are nearby that maybe you walk the same trail every day, but it's different every day. And there are different people along the way every day. So true. And so, yes, I have had participants say like, thank you for reminding me why this is meaningful to me. You know, they realize I didn't realize I loved it and the ways I loved it as a child and why and how my adoption journey was embodied in that. And then, you know, again, as adults where, yes, I, I, I lost my way and now I've found it and thank you. So yeah, I've had that happen and I hope it continues to happen with everyone. And yes, those relationships are deepened or renewed or discovered with other people they love too, you know, where you're out there on the trails with other people you care about and, it sort of follows that, you know, sort of adage I have of each one, reach one, teach one. And, you know, we can do that certainly with the natural world where you're like, hey, I found this great trail. Want to come out there with me and I'll show you these trees or it's a way to create community and also, you know, give some love back to the earth because we do a lot of taking and not so much giving back. I don't want to say that the natural world portion of the study is more important to me. It's not. I mean, I, I really do believe that there are many of us in the adoption community and constellation that have faced a lot of trauma. And I want to highlight those stories, but I also want to show that so much of the healing can be found in the natural world for us and for everyone. Well, thank you for all of that. And I will include whatever you need me to in the show notes. I read all your questions and I'm getting started. Good. Yeah, yes. take your time. No rush. It's it's all good. Whatever timeline you need is fine. Just thank you for participating. I'm anxious to hear your story. Thank you. So from wherever you want to start and however much you want to share about your adoption journey, that would be great. Well, one of the questions you had asked was, um, you know, what, what's been rewarding 
were challenging about being better connected to the adoption community? I thought it was a great question, especially when I sort of sat down to start thinking about how I would answer that question. And the answer to that would be that I think I'm just now really beginning to be able to answer that. And in order to, I probably would have to go back quite a ways in, in time. But, you know, growing up, I didn't know of anyone who was adopted outside of my three siblings. All of us were adopted from different families. So we didn't share any blood connection. You know, never once did we discuss being adopted with one another. Adoption silence was sort of the word of the day then for many of us adopted during the baby scoop era. I was adopted in 1966. It was a closed adoption. And it was also the era of matching, you know, where adoption agencies were intentionally trying to match siblings to each other and to the to parents to the degree that they could to, you know, to ensure some level of passing right, where nobody had to be honest about how their family was constructed because you looked enough alike that you could pull it off. And so, you know, it was conveyed to me early on that adoption was not something to talk about, either inside or outside of my home. And I rarely offered up that I was adopted unless I was in a situation where I had to. So like, you know, for many of us, the doctor's office for medical history and not having that or, you know, the ubiquitous and often really dreaded childhood classroom assignments on the family tree, you know, where you were outed whether you wanted to be or not because you didn't have the information that the people around you had. I think over the course of my life, I really try to deny to some extent that it was really an ex- my experience that I was adopted. And of course, when I did accept it, I think I believed I was just fine and I didn't need anyone or anything I didn't need an adoption community to connect to. I was navigating like most of us do in the world of being adopted around um, other people who were not. So we learned how to assimilate. I think I just didn't think I needed anyone. So I just didn't really seek out the adoption community as a source of connection for most of my life. And then as I got older and I had my two daughters, who of course were the first people in my life I shared any resemblance with, Then I decided to engage in reunion, despite the anger and resistance of my then now ex-husband. And then my subsequent decision to go to graduate school in my 40s. Did I really begin to explore what it meant to be adopted? I had one friend in my cohort, my grad cohort, who was also adopted, and she was the first person I'd met. So this is me in my 40s, the first person I'd met who was adopted. And because of my graduate thesis work on adoption and reunion, she and I had some discussions about our statuses, but even then, I didn't want to see myself as adopted, I am, if that makes sense. I took a very sterile, academic, intellectual approach to it, and not an emotional one. To say I disassociated would, um, you know, be an understatement. There was a sociologist, um, he's kind of the great-grandfather of adoption research back in the 1950s. His name is H. David Kirk. He had a theory in his research on adoption and success in adoption that it really centered around this idea of of rejection of difference versus acknowledgement of difference. The resulting right is that adoptive parents were more successful in in their families with adoptees if they acknowledged the difference of their children amongst other children and their family amongst other family structures. So the point of my bringing that up was that I really kind of followed the former. I 
I believe, yes, I was adopted, but I wasn't really different. <laughs> so it sounds crazy saying this, given my background and doing the work for as much as I have in my career, but, but it's true. I, I really, this is, I think disassociated from the experience, even though, you know, I've spent the last 13 years teaching on adoption and family studies. I've served on adoption boards during my career. I've met students who are adopted and talked with colleagues who were considering the process of adoption, you know, advising them. And I just never really created or sought out friendships in the adoption community. It's strange to me even now, but in some ways I think I struggled because I had to sort of, like I said, sterilize adoption in order to teach about it. And that was in part to avoid backlash from very conservative students who who resented learning about the other side of adoption. And I think I also needed to manage the ways the content triggered me because it was so personal. There was always just this dividing line between my lived experience and the academic side of it. I can and understand I can, everything you said. I really do. Yeah. You know, I've figured this out as you've asked me these questions. It's really made me stop and think. And I, you know, I would just add too to say that I think I, I believe I was also really buried under a lot of shame and blame for many, many reasons around my adoption and reunion. So it made it hard for me to be myself in any social context. And I'm introverted anyway. When you sort of pile all those layers on top of an introvert, I think I just, I stayed very isolated and very academic in my approach to adoption. I appreciate uh, you sharing all of that, Lena. I really do because I think you have definitely put words to what other adoptees may have felt, too. I hope hope so. Yeah, I know. I mean, I don't hope that. I mean, I don't hope. Right, I know what you mean. But But you, you were very vulnerable in sharing that. And I have heard another adoptee basically say the same thing you did. Because those of us born in the 60s, I'm 1964, and in the closed system, and I too was not able to talk about adoption. And no. I would talk about it outside of the home, but I would I would be shamed for that. It was not something yeah. that my mother wanted me to do. And so yeah. I was aware of that. So we, yeah, we were silenced in, in many ways and made to feel like we don't discuss this relinquishment and adoption at right. all. Yeah. It goes back to that H. David Kirk theory. Like if no one's acknowledging your difference, but rather just rejecting the fact that, you know, that we're different. Like, we're just not going to talk about that. That's rejection of difference is is silencing. So then you have to piece together in your own mind as a young person, what this really means when there isn't somebody else to help you understand it. I think young people, at least I think in our era and maybe the research is still sort of bearing out that even now the shame and blame gets carried by the child because no one else is telling them it's not theirs. Mm. So, you you know, yeah, yeah, you know, if we don't help kids see that this doesn't belong to you, there was never anything wrong with you. If we don't have frank conversations about that, kids will do that. I mean, they do that with divorce. They do that in all kinds of other ways. They will take it on because no one is telling them not to. So all of those things, I think, all compounded into me just sort of denying that I needed it in the adoption community, that I needed to find people, like literally search them out in order to to live a better life. Um, so when did you search the adoption community out, other adoptees, besides the well, friend you met? 
like I said, I served um, on the boards of a few different adoption organizations. So I was around some amazing people who are doing some amazing work. But even then I was like, I felt like I didn't fit there. It was the strangest thing. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I sought it out as a way to serve the adoption community by being on the board of some organizations. But even then, I don't think I was like looking for my people. You know, I just thought like, here's another way where I can serve, where I can take my knowledge and share it with other people and help and learn myself. And it was a method of serving, not seeking. Mm. Uh, so I did that. I did those positions. You know, I continued to teach. I, I was doing research and contacting other adoptees. Obviously, as participants, we'd have conversations. But again, it was so academically driven that, you know, you take people's stories in and you're grateful to them for sharing, but you know, then we're done, you know, like the study's over, we're done. And a lot of those folks at that time were a lot of people that were not in Colorado where I lived. They were all scattered across the United States. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm dumbfounded even myself that I, I wasn't making those relationships, but again, I would go back to the shame and the blame of, and we can talk a little bit, when you're ready about the shame and blame associated with my reunion. But when I was doing a lot of that work, I was in reunion. So I think I, I was carrying so much shame and blame that I couldn't really be social. Like I just couldn't see the forest for the trees, to mm. be honest. I, I couldn't see that those people were the people I needed at that time. You know, I, I would say that this study has been, it has been life-saving for me in, in so many ways. Because you're I, talking to more adoptees, for sure. Right? I mean, I always was <laughs> in my previous research. I always was. And I was working with them and, and, and volunteering with them and engaging with them and dining with them and, you know, working alongside them. But I was still like, I'm just serving here. I'm not looking for my people. So no, yeah, I, I was I was doing that then, talking with adoptees. But now it's different. I'm out of reunion. I've sorted through a lot of the shame and the blame and the guilt associated with some stuff we can talk about later. I've been able to shed a lot of that, which means I feel like I can be more myself. So I'm a little bit more comfortable in my own body and in my own spirit. And yes, as I've come across people for this study, I've just connected in a way that I couldn't connect before. And I realized like all of the searching I was doing all along, like, you know, maybe even through teaching and finding my way through adoption, through teaching it um, in research and serving on adoption boards and getting into reunion and doing that searching for my people. My people were always there. You're my people. You were always there. Like, <laughs> Everyone was always there, but I, I just wasn't ready. You know, right. like I didn't know how to do it. Yeah. This study has really brought me to my people and it feels so good. That's wonderful. I wish I could have had it earlier, but, um, you know, it's divine timing, right? That things happen when they happen. So this study, yes, has brought some amazing people into my life. Help me to see that I'm not alone in some of the things I felt so alone in that carried so much shame and blame and guilt. And to answer your question, the study is really what's brought me to the community. It's just amazing. I'm very, very grateful. Uh, it's a privilege and an honor in so many ways. And so Lena, the study has been a gift. I should have re 
rephrase that. I, I want to rephrase that. You're sure, meeting sure. adoptees that you haven't met before. Yes, because I'm thinking of Brad and I'm thinking of myself. And, yeah. and so I think it's all of these parts to this big thing um, that you described, your way of looking at it in the past and the way you're engaging now differently. It's, it's all of that. Like all of that plays a part in it. Because I know there are people that I'm meeting now for the first time, you know. And yeah. while I knew adoptees growing up, these are different people. And and yeah. that affects everything, affects everything else, right? Like it all yeah. plays a part. So that's what I meant to say, that you're meeting Yeah, and you're a different never, person. Right, I'm a different person. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. The study um, is really of my imagining. You know, it's not to fulfill any sort of academic landmark like a thesis that you've written that you present in front of your committee or whatever it's 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 the work I wanted to put together at this point in my life which means I'm doing this for myself and for my people and for no one else will the study end up being published in some way that's my intention but it's not a directive by anybody that I do this particular study it was it was of my own making and so when we're able to do that the work takes on a completely different meaning. You know, it's, it's not mandatory anymore. It's, it's completely my own. And one thing I didn't say about the study is that it's a photo essay based study. And by that, I mean, I will be doing a qualitative interview with all of the subjects in the study. So it's you know like a two hour zoom interview that's recorded. And then I'll be photographing everyone in the places in the natural world that they love. So that means I will fly to wherever or drive or however it is I get there and photograph everyone where they want to be. I should say that the photographic element of the study is optional. You know, I can't guarantee anonymity for somebody if that's something they're seeking through through photography because while I can do things to, you know, take someone's face out of the image, they'll still be their profile, but it's optional. You know, if you just want to share your narrative about what you love about the natural world and how it's embodied your adoptive experience or reunion experience, I absolutely want to capture your story. If you don't want your image taken, that's okay. But the reason, you know, I also wanted this photo essay approach is because I am a photographer and I have been for over a decade. And I also think that, you know, what's so common in our narratives is that we've spent a lot of our lives feeling like we were never seen. What better way to be seen than to, you know, be photographed in a place that you love um, in the natural world that something means to you. So it makes you both be seen and also comfortable being seen because you're in a place where you feel safe. So, yeah, that's the other aspect of the study is that it is a photo essay based research study. Those are the parameters. But again, the photos are optional. Um, you don't have to do that if you don't want to. Okay. Yeah. I still haven't decided. I love the it's idea, okay. though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's okay. It's, yeah. You don't have to decide right now. What has been meaningful and or disheartening about your search and reunion with your biological family? You know, Having answers to lifelong questions is always meaningful, and it's information that every person, especially adoptees, are entitled to. I mean, it's our birthright, uh, and withholding our histories is, quite frankly, criminal. You know, we're a class of people without human rights, 
the vast majority of the population has no idea this is the case. I know that I'm fortunate. You know, the meaningful part is that I know I'm fortunate but I was able to find my, my history, which I did before OVCs were open in Colorado. I had a lot of sleuthing with very minimal non-identifying information, um, but, but I did it. And I'm grateful that I was able to do that. I'm the kind of person that if I decide I'm going to do something, I do it. <laughs> so I'm not surprised. I, you know, I did it with very little information, but, you know, no one should have to work that hard to know who they are and where they came from. I mean, we just shouldn't have to work that hard. So, you know, the meaningful part for me is that I have the information that I had, you know, wondered about my whole life. I didn't do reunion until I was 37. So up until 37, you know, I knew nothing. All that said, when you grow up knowing nothing, you know, even the bad or the disheartening parts of reunion are more than you ever had before. You know, the good, the bad, it's all more than you ever had before. So you accept the outcomes because living in the dark, you know, was always worse. I like how you put that. Well, you know, I think it's really, in any context, good and bad are sort of dangerous words. I mean, what does that even mean? (laughs) You know, I mean, and especially in the context of adoption where so many of us and, you know, the research, my own research and many other researchers you know, the reality has borne out of their work that the unions are often not successful. They aren't. They're very tumultuous and they're roller coaster rides for everyone. And often they don't last. Um, my last research work was on the outcomes of long term reunions. So people who had been in reunion longer than 12 years. Yeah, 90% of them were what one might quantify as being bad or unsuccessful, or failed, right? And those words work in in certain ways in our world, but within adoption, it's like, well, I don't know. I know more than I did before. Right, right. I don't necessarily maybe like the, the pathway to having found that out because it was not fun or difficult or whatever words people use. And in the end, you know, we found out it wasn't going to work. You know, my reunion was not good, but it also provided me with answers I didn't have before. I just would say, you know, that from an academic standpoint, right, the research shows that reunions are often more often fail than they do succeed, which I think, you know, has a lot to do with the amount of work and healing birth parents and adoptees have done through the course of their lives before a reunion even occurs. I think it's important to know that these connections aren't meant to be a replacement for the work. And I think so many of us who are lacking support are trying to navigate or tried to navigate reunion alone, which is often true now, even with young people finding bio families, like for example, through social media, maybe in secret where their parents don't know, believe that things will get solved. All of the angst and maybe the trauma they feel inside will get solved through reunion. It doesn't work like that. You know, that's not where the answers are. I think also our, you know, the media in, in this country also presents these amazing reunion stories and as though they are ubiquitous, you know, as though these reunions were, you know, like we're all monoliths with these reunions and it's just simply not true. So I guess, you know, from my researcher mental academic standpoint, I think there's a lot of danger around reunion if you don't have the resources or maybe have not done the work or are doing the work 
while you're in reunion or searching. If you're not doing that, then, you know, the outcomes are often not great. Do you feel like I, you had support during no, your search? No, God, no, 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 not at all. When I was 37, I can't even remember, it was 2002, I hadn't had access to the internet. I hadn't gone to grad school yet. I hadn't done any of that work yet. I mean, I didn't go to grad school till I was after reunion. So no, I didn't have books. I didn't have the internet. I didn't have support groups. I didn't have a therapist. I had an ex-husband who was very resentful and angry about me doing it, telling me that it would destroy our family. You know, and my adoptive father had already died. I was taking care of my adoptive mother and I was keeping that a secret from her. Two little kids and no, my gosh, no, I had no support. I did not know what I was doing. I was just like, I'm going to do this. You know, I reached out to Catholic Charities. I got my non-identifying information for my 75 bucks. And I just got on the phone and started making phone calls <laughs> and figured it out. But, oh, gosh, no, I had no support. No. And I'm so grateful for the, the world that, you know, people that are searching now. You know, there's so much more information out there than it was when we were doing it. And um, I should just speak for myself. I was so naive about the whole thing. And it led to my demise in a lot of ways. But I hear, but yes, yeah, I hear you saying that that is really important to, to have a oh. support system. And I have had plenty of guests who speak so highly of their partners mm. were really their support. And so yeah. I, I would agree. I had my son. <laughs> he was 20 years old. I was nice. divorced, and I just remember saying, I, I got to carry him along with me, you know, so that I can unpack this with somebody. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know how well it would have gone for me if, if I had tried to do that by myself. Yeah, my daughters were six and three at the time I did that. Um, I was already in an abusive marriage and had been for close to you know, 15 years by that point. And there really were no adoption competent therapists out there at that time. Plus I was kind of disassociated from it. So I, I probably thought like, I don't need any help with this. I was in such a childlike state of mind, which I do think is really true for so many adoptees and birth parents who engage in reunion. You know, it takes everybody back to some other time in their life. Birth mothers when they're 17, 18, you know, when they're young, Women who have relinquished, that's the frame of mind they're in when their child shows up. And adoptees are often in a very childlike state of mind because, I mean, that's, that's how it works. You know, we, we're, we're moving around in these adult bodies, but our minds and our hearts and our, you know, are very much a childlike state of mind. And we, of course, go in and out of that as we in and visit, a, you know, a bio mom or bio dad. Then we go back to our married life and then we're... You know, it's a, it's an intense experience, as I know you know, and so many of the people that listen to your podcast know. I mean, that is an understatement. I just know from my own research and spending time doing this research that the healthiest outcomes for reunions are for people who have done some work prior to reunion or will at least engage in doing that difficult work on their own traumas. Thank you for so sharing that. So that the reunions that. are successful. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else you want to share about your reunion, your personal journey? Yeah. So, you know, one thing that I think we don't talk enough about with reunion is the potential for genetic sexual attraction or what's called GSA. 
I'm not sure I even really love that um, acronym because it doesn't really say a whole lot about what it is. I mean, we could be a lot more explicit and clear about what happens when that happens, but that did happen to me with my birth father. It was probably the most traumatic, painful, yeah, traumatizing experience I've ever been through. I had nobody to turn to. I didn't really understand what was happening myself. I was a grown woman, of course, at 37 years old, and I like knew better to understand what was happening. I didn't have anybody to turn to to say, I can help me with this. GSA is a situation where it's essentially coercion along with abuse, sexual abuse. But it took me probably until maybe four or five years ago to realize that it wasn't my fault, that the shame, the guilt, and the blame uh, were put upon me, and I took it on because I didn't have somebody else, i.e. my birth father saying, you know, I'm responsible for this. This isn't your fault. It's similar to what we were talking about earlier about if we're not clear with our adopted kids that, you know, there is an acknowledgement of difference and we want to embrace that difference and help you understand the difference that kids will take that on themselves, the blame and the shame that is associated with adoption. And so GSA was a very similar thing. I couldn't turn to my husband because he was also abusive. My bio mother was not healthy. I couldn't go to her. I didn't have anybody to go to. Yeah, it almost killed me. Lena, I, I just I just want to say I'm just so sorry you experienced that. Thank you. But we realize that birth mothers and birth fathers, you know, that void of some two or more decades is 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 there. So when they reconnect, they're right brought right back to the place where they were 17 or 18 or whatever age and relinquishing. And there's this attraction because there wasn't a healthy, normal relationship built throughout the lives between mother and child. You know, GSA can be a fine thing if you see like, oh, I see what's happening between us. I recognize and know about GSA and I know that we need to get some help for this before it crosses any strange lines. And I, I um, understand. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. The way I take in my own GSA experience now after a lot of therapy, is that I must have gone through it so that I can prevent someone else from going through it. So it's not an easy thing to talk about, but if I can prevent it to happening to somebody else, then, then it will make what I've gone through worth it to be the voice that says, this is dangerous, deal with it when it happens, recognize it, get some help. If you want to be able to maintain a reunion when GSA has come up, you will not be able to do that without getting some help. It's that powerful, frankly. So your, your birth father was not willing to get any help? Oh, no, no. I mean, how do I say this? He put the responsibility of it pretty much on me. Kept asking me, is this okay? Do you think this is okay? You know, is this all right? And right, that's the coercive part. I was in this childlike state of mind. I wanted to know my father all my life. We had so much in common. I looked exactly like him. You know, it's what we've been trying to find our whole lives, right? Someone that was sounded like them, looked like them, talked like them. Yes, when it happened, it all of a sudden came my responsibility to make it right. You know, as one therapist had put it to me when I finally 
came out to her after probably a year of therapy. It took me that long to finally come to tell the truth. She said, well, of course he picked you because he knew you would never leave. Mm. So that gives you a sense of, you know, when you entangle somebody in that, you are reaching somebody at some of the most vulnerable places in their spirit and in their heart and their, in their hopes. And so, so sorry. Oh no, it's okay. It's just, um, the vulnerability is so intense. Right. And also being in an abusive marriage did not help, right? Like it didn't help. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't even strong enough to leave that at that time, but I didn't really understand it until someone helped a therapist helped me ex- explain to me that it's an act of coercion. Yeah. Right. I, like they know, they know you're vulnerable yes. and, 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 and they will, and they also know you'll take it on. Yeah. You'll keep it a secret. You'll, you'll stay in it in order to keep some of the things that you love about having a father that you'll persist. Yeah just to just to try to stay whole and so I guess that's that goes back to my point about if you've not done the work prior to reunion and you're not and you don't have the resources you need it makes the path and the journey really really hard and so once I did say to my father I'm not doing this anymore right you can we go to therapy um he basically refused so in the end right you're left with well you really didn't want a daughter Mm. you wanted a partner this is heartbreaking. Yeah. So, but you know, I mean, I'm okay. I just think like, we don't talk about this honestly. Right. And I am not an anomaly. It is happening to other people. It, it will continue. Yeah. And it will, you know, it is not even just within adoption. You know, we're also, we've got kids in foster care that are, you know, getting placed with families that might be, you know, going back and forth between bio family and, you know, their recently adoptive or foster care setting. You know, they're in different homes with different people. They're very vulnerable. You know, they just want to belong and be loved and be seen. And, you know, we we have this even with open adoptions where there can be, you know, young people going back and forth. You know, there's a lot of movement in adoption. And I appreciate. So we need to pay attention to that. I deeply appreciate you being vulnerable and, and sharing talking about opening up about this because I totally agree with you that that this is happening in other people's families, whether it's in reunion or, or just like you say, foster children going back and forth. So I just, I do appreciate you taking the time to, to talk about this. Oh, I mean, Jennifer, the gratitude honestly is to you because I've wanted to be able to talk about this in spaces where it would be valuable and people would understand without judgment. And maybe there still will be people that judge. And I understand. I mean, it's the world we live in and it's a complicated thing. But I am deeply grateful to you for creating the space for me to share because it's healing for me. I don't want anybody to go through this. I mean, I guess the universe has put it in my lap for some reason, and I was meant to go through it for some reason. But, you know, my take, again, is that I want to help other people so they don't have to walk that path. So thanks for allowing me the opportunity to share. Yes, absolutely. And I want to honor your time. So I, I guess in closing, I'll ask you, is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to share? I just think 
if we can continue through like podcasts like yours and blogs from other people and all the people on the adoption constellation that are doing this work, including adoptive parents and, you know, everyone, all extended family members in, in the world of adoption, that it is a complex, complicated family form. We will continue to design families and the way we are probably in perpetuity. I don't see adoption or family formations through adoption or through foster care, through assisted reproductive technology, all the different ways we are designing families. These designs of families are complicated and complex, and we have to be willing to see it that way, um, to drop the rose-colored glasses and see it for what it is, because the little people, the, the people that have the least they're the most innocent in this process, right? Are these babies conceived through art or adopted from foster care or placed through foster care or international, interracial, same sex? All these different forms of adoption bring in young people who are not equipped to manage the complexity of it by themselves. And the people around them need to understand how complex it is to help them sort it out the whole rest of their lives. Though we are forever infantilized and made to look as though we're always kids forever, we don't. We grow up and become adults, but it's a part of our lived experience. It always will be. We need the people around us to help us sort through it um, as children and young adults and into adulthood until, until we can manage it ourselves. They can't do that without understanding how complex it is and having the tools and resources they need is very, very important. Yeah, I guess that would be my last thought. Thank you, Lena. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It's been great. You're so welcome. And thank you for the work you do, capturing everyone's stories and being the vessel for the stories, because it's not always easy for you either. You do it with grace and ease and beauty, and we all appreciate you. I do especially. So thanks so much. I appreciate Lena opening up up to us in hopes that we better understand the topic of genetic sexual attraction. Sometimes we don't know what we're experiencing until it takes a life of its own and has a negative impact. Many other times we don't know that we don't know. I agree with Lena that more joy can happen when we stay open to it. For me, it's a matter of staying intentional about what's possible. And a joyful or content life is indeed possible. I sense that Lena chooses topics to research that help her and others identify or be reminded of ways that can heal us. I love when she said, Mother Earth has been for her the best mother. In an earlier conversation with Lena, she took me back to being a little person and why I so loved being outdoors either with friends or alone with the trees, birds, and the clear blue sky. I would say Mother Earth has mothered me too. As Lena says, it's beneficial to us and the planet if we find our way back to being in connection with nature. More and more adoptees have related to me recently that they are interested in participating in the research study Lena is currently conducting, or at least curious to know more about it. I answered the questions that make up the Nurturing by Nature research study 
soon after this recording. It was enjoyable to reflect on my relationship with the great outdoors in my childhood and how I engage with it now. Some reasons are different, but mostly they are the same. Body movement, community with others, and the appreciation for all the sights, sounds, and smells that are found out there. Thank you, Lena, for having this conversation with me. Our newfound relationship has reminded me of so many wonderful things that I know to be true, like getting outside early in the morning for a walk, taking advantage of what nature offers, maintaining a healthy regard for other life forms that partake in the planet too, and purposefully being one with Mother Earth each day is another way to heal my body. It's satisfying to know that the work you're doing is not only giving you meaningful information, but deepening your connection with the adoptee and foster care community. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, visit jenniferdianegolston.com. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give, hopefully, a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I trust you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is still the very best way for the show to grow. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a monthly donation of at least $5 or a one-time amount that works for you at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Thank you for being here.